Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and it's June 19th, Friday evening, and this is Christogenos. E.Y. James is on the road tonight. He won't be here with us. He's on his way here to New York to see me in Binghamton tomorrow, where we have a Paul seminar in the morning. So Eli will will be absent tonight, tomorrow night, and Sunday. Tomorrow night, I'm not sure um, whether Ken Gregg is going to do the Yahweh's Covenant People show or not. And on Sunday, I will have, on the voice of Christian Israel at noon, Clifton Emmerheiser. And we'll be talking about the, the women in the genealogy of Christ. Tonight, we're going to talk about the parables, and specifically the parables relating to race. Most, um, well, no mainstream churching entity minister realizes it, but a great deal of the parables do relate directly to race. I'd like to start with the parable of the mustard. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. By the way, I have Greg Howard here with me, and he's going to be joining me this evening. He's um, driven in, in here to, to my home to accompany me to Binghamton tomorrow for the Paul conference that we're doing. Okay, the parable of the mustard seed. That's where I'd like to start. Matthew 13, 31 and 32. He laid forth another parable, saying to them, The kingdom of the heavens is like a grain of mustard, which a man taking has sowed in his field, which is indeed the smallest of all the seeds. But when it grows, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of heaven come and nest in its branches. Our white Adamic race has its origins from eight people who survived the flood. And then from that, many centuries later, those having grown into many nations, our Saxon-Israelite branch of the Adamic race descended from a mere 75 people who went down with the patriarch Jacob into Egypt. We were certainly the smallest of all the seeds. And yet we've built the greatest civilization that, that the earth has known in just a couple of thousand years, in spite of all the wars that we've had against us ourselves and, and with the other races. As for the birds of heaven, you have heard it asserted on this program that the non-white races have their ancestry, at least in part, from the fallen angels, which is made evident by studying the apocryphal books of Enoch, along with the epistles of Jude and Peter. Who is currently pressing their way into the kingdom of Yahweh? If not the birds of heaven and every sort of unclean fowl, the non-white races. Now this is just something to think about, but it can be substantiated. Revelation 18.2 and he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. I don't think those things really relate to birds and, and, and demons. I think that they relate to people. The, um, the, the kingdom of heaven, as Joshua Christ says in the Gospels, that the law and the prophets were until John... And from that time, the kingdom of heaven is preached, and every man presses his way into it. We know the kingdom of heaven is the white race, because we don't see massive amounts of immigration 
by aliens into any other nations. I mean, the Russians aren't, and the Indians aren't trying to immigrate into China and vice versa. The parable of the net. Again, the kingdom of the heavens is like a net having been cast into the sea, and it gathers from out of every race, which when it is full, bringing upon the shore and sitting, they gather the good ones into vessels, but the rotten ones they cast out. Thusly it shall be the consummation of the age. The messengers shall go out, and they shall separate the wicked from the midst of the righteous, and they shall cast them into the furnace of fire, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here, Yahshua Christ prophesied universalism, the belief that hominids of every species can somehow enter the kingdom of heaven. Here we are told that only the good race is kept. Yes, race. I know the King James Version of the Bible says kind, that the good kind is kept. But the word is genos, and it means race. It means a race, or a, a family, or a species. It does not simply mean a variety, for example, of believers or non-believers or anything else. It means a race. There are other Greek words, like poikilus, or toyautas which mean a variety without specifying a race. Greg, do you have anything to say about these parables? Well, you're on a roll, but, um, you know, I just, that's one thing I love about the truths, uh, Bill, and Christian identity is that so consistently the scriptures from uh, beginning to end fit, uh, fit the theology that we have. And this is a perfect example of that, you know, that, I mean, our belief, our, our firm belief that the white race uh, are the true elect, and why would there not be one race that, at the end of at the end of this age, when all the races are collected in this this net, uh, the, you know, these other races they're, they're going to be cast out, and uh, there's one race here that's called good, the Genos, the good Genos, and clearly based on this verse and the rest of scripture, we know who that is. That's the white Adamic race, you know, the race that uh, is the true uh, descendants of the children of Israel. And uh, it's, you know, these parables for years have been a mystery. Uh, you know, there's all kinds, there's no lack of interpretations of them out there in Christianity. And the Bible colleges and the seminaries, they all can put their particular little spin on it. But uh, it's really quite simple when you come to it with, with the correct view of, uh, of an anointed race. And, you know, those words may be offensive to many, you know, not necessarily the ones on this phone call, but Christianity in general doesn't like to, to single out a race, that there is a special race. You know, and there's been a whole invention of an industry to shut down that type of thinking. But the word is very clear here. Uh, they gather the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. And these are the direct words of, of Yahshua the Messiah. And who are we to argue with it? Whether it fits our concept or not, there it is. Quite simple. Very good. The next parable I'd like to discuss is the parable of the wheat and the tares, which is basically right along the same lines. Matthew said, I'm only going to give the, um, I'm only going to read the explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares, found in Matthew 13, verses 36 through 43. Then leaving the crowds, he had gone into the house. 
And his students came forth to him, saying, Elucidate for us the parable of the tares in the field. And responding, he said, He sowing the good seed is the son of man. Now the field is the world, and the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil, or the false accuser in my translation. And the harvest is the consummation of the age, and the reapers are the messengers. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered and burned in a fire, thusly it shall be at the consummation of the age. The Son of Man shall send his messengers, and they shall gather from his kingdom all offenses and those creating lawlessness, and they shall cast them into the furnace of fire, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous shall shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He having an ear must hear. The sowing of the good seed could only have happened when Yahweh created Adam, as seen in the Genesis account. Yahshua Christ, being Yahweh come in the flesh, can take credit for that. He's the root and the branch of Jesse. The only way he could be the root and the branch of Jesse is to be Yahweh come in the flesh. He sowed the good seed. The enemy who sows the tares is the devil. We see in Revelation chapter 12 that the devil is the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. That old serpent. That's the only explanation where this verse makes perfect, this, this parable makes perfect um, literal sense. Is in the sowing of tares. The, the tares would never have been a danger to us if they didn't look just like us. And the only way that they look like us is because they mixed with us. The tares sown in among the wheat. This race mixing happened in, in, with the seduction of Eve and with the Genesis 6 account. And, and it's still going on today. On the weeping and gnashing of teeth, Luke 13, 22 to 30. And he passed through each city and village, teaching and making the journey to Jerusalem. Then someone said to him, Prince, those being are those being preserved but few? And he said to him, Strive to enter in through the narrow door, because many, I say to you, shall seek to enter, and they shall not prevail. After which the master of the house would arise and bar the door, and you standing outside, then, to, then begin to knock at the door, saying, Master, open for us. And replying, he shall say to you, I know not from where you are. Then you shall begin to say, We have eaten and have drank with you. And you have taught in our streets. And he shall speak to you, saying, I know not from where you are. Depart from me, all who work it in justice. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the prophets in the kingdom of Yahweh. But you are being cast outside. And they shall arrive from the east and the west and from the north and the south. And they shall recline in the kingdom of Yahweh. And behold, those who are last shall be first, and those who are first shall be last. 
the people in Jerusalem today are the same enemies that crucified Christ 2,000 years ago. And they ate with him and drank with him. And he taught in their streets. And they're going to be cast outside. And even though they believe that there's one God, and even the ones that believe that Yahshua Christ is that God, if they're not the children of Jacob, there's no room for them. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So believing, as the Judeo-Christian churches teach, isn't good enough after all. Because those people clearly believe, the people of that parable, the subjects of that parable, they clearly believe, but they're still going to be cast outside. So there's a, there's a certain disagreement with Scripture and the Judeo-Christian theology. There are major problems with it. Greg? Yeah, Bill. Um, so much in these verses. Uh, I just was looking for a verse here in Obadiah, and I found it um, just referencing with, uh, as therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. And if we look in the book of Obadiah, uh, it talks about how the house of Esau is going to be for stubble and talking about the burning uh, of the house of Esau. And it seems like a direct correlation that these tares are identified as Edomites uh, throughout the rest of the Bible. And the tares just have such a negative effect uh, on the wheat. You know, they, they want to choke the wheat out. They want to take the nutrients of the wheat. And just nothing but negative uh, everything uh, for the wheat from these tares, uh, even to the point where they would choke them out completely and take, take over uh, the field of the wheat. And I think we can all testify in our own experience that we just feel such a, a, a heaviness in this, in this world all, all the true believers, the white race uh, is what I'm talking about when I say that, the, the Anglo-Saxon race. There's a, uh, in a sense, a war has been declared on us, and these tares are trying to choke us out. And until that time when they are taken out of the way, it does, it just be, you just can feel uh, that we are not going to shine forth as the sun uh, in the kingdom of our Father. But you can just imagine what it will be like when they will all be out of the way, all be bundled and burned and gone. And it's just such a glorious thought to think about when that happens. I mean, the, the verse right there, then the righteous, uh, then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Uh, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And we just, we look for that day. And a couple of verses before, it says we have to wait to the end of the age for this to take place. Obviously, we're looking at a future event here. It hasn't taken place yet. But I think we can look for that event. Um, I know Eli, you know, has got some good information on it that it's coming up in the next few years. I don't know. I hope he's right. But you can sense that these terrorists are just in a panic right now. Uh, and um, you can sense that the wheat wants to break forth and shine and Hopefully tomorrow in our meeting, some uh, wheat will be getting together, and uh, we'll be shining a little bit. You're doing good to to, to bring up the um, the book of Obadiah in this context, because Obadiah says that that Joseph will become a fire, and and the house of Esau 
shall be stubble. So we see here that the true Israelites in the parable of the wheat and tares are, are the wheat, and the tares are actually Edomites. Now, to substantiate that, we have the prophecy of Ezekiel. In, in chapter 34, Ezekiel talks about the lost sheep. And in chapters 35 and 36, Ezekiel prophecies the taking over of the land of Judah and Israel by the Edomites, which happened in history. Shortly thereafter, after the return from Babylon of the, of the 40,000 people Israelites to Jerusalem, a couple of centuries later, they had actually conquered the Edomites and forced them to convert to Judaism. That is how the tares were able to impersonate the wheat. The parable of the marriage feast. And, and we see this fire in, in other places, and we're going to see it in the parable of the sheep and the goats um, coming up here soon. But first we have the parable of the marriage feast. Bill, can I make a quick uh, one more comment on something you said? You, you made a great point on how the tares uh, impersonate the wheat. And even in the parable here, it talks about how you can't pull up the tares because they look so much like the wheat. You may damage the wheat in pulling them up. And how, how clear we see this in the world today that these tares have actually uh, adopted the very persona of the wheat. Well, you're right, and I'm glad, you, I'm glad you pulled me back to this parable, because men have tried to remove the tares for a thousand years and failed. Okay? The first crusade, during the first crusade, the crusaders went to Frankfurt in the Rhineland in Germany and, and really ravaged the Jews there and drove them out, and they came back. And the French in the 1300s tried to remove the Jews, and they still came back. And the British threw them out, and under Cromwell, they got back in. Right. And Adolf Hitler tried to remove them all from Germany. But the Jews in England and America pulled those nations into war against Germany, and the Jews control Germany again now. Tears, tears are nothing if not tenacious. Well, right, but it, it's not, in other words, it's not, we can't remove the tares. They're always going to be here until Yahshua Christ removes them. That's the point of the parable. That's why the Crusaders failed. That's why Cromwell brought the Jews back into England. That's why Adolf Hitler failed, because it wasn't time to remove the tares from the wheat, and we can't do it. We're told that Yahshua would do it. It's just so so tempting to try, you know. Because there's such a pestilence. Um, but I, I was just going to make the point that such the other verses are coming to mind in Revelation 2, I think it's 2.9 and 3.9, where Yahshua directly uh, addresses the false Judeans and is going to make them come before the true believers, uh, probably before their final judgment, uh, and just show that these are the false Judeans and yet they probably look like the true Judeans. And, you know, they've got the world fooled into thinking that they are the chosen people uh, of the Old Testament, uh, the, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
and you know Judaism was the Old Testament religion, and, and on and on it goes uh, with the terror, a terror religion, so to speak. You know, just a religion that looks real at a qu- at a quick uh, glance, but when you really dig in, and, and again, that's what I love about Christian identity is we dig in and we we burrow down and take a hard look, and Christian identity stands up to scholarship, to criticism, and you really can't, you know, it may be offensive to many people, and without question, uh, if people find uh, what we believe to be offensive, but only because they're blind to what the truth is. If you are an open-minded person that really wants to know the Bible and really wants to see the truth, you have to take a look uh, at these concepts, the concepts of race in the Bible. And uh, that's what Bill mentioned at the start of the program, was that these parables deal with race. And really, when you boil it down to it, the whole Bible is about race from beginning to end, one race in particular. And yet these tares are sown by the devil himself. And it's it's just a really amazing truth in this parable. And probably one of the key passages of Scripture, I would say, that uh, two-seed-line Christian identity uh, is strengthened by. I mean, it's crystal clear right there. The devil has children. And if you want to look at that in any kind of figurative spiritual sense, you can't because children are children. They're not being uh, spiritualized here. Yahweh had children. The devil had children. And there's going to be conflict until the end of the age. Well, that word seed is sperma, and and there's no doubt that sperma can't be spiritual. Yes. Um, Sperma only comes from one place, and and it's not spiritual at all. I'm glad you said that, not me. (laughs) The parable of the marriage feast. Before discussing this parable, it may be good to note the places where it is explained that Yahshua Christ is called the bridegroom, so that there's no confusion here. This this happens to be my favorite of the parables, I, I I think. I mean, I might go read a few more and change my mind because they're all good, but th- this has always been a, a, a favorite of mine. Matthew nine fourteen to 15. Then the students of Johannes came forth, the students of John came forth to him saying, For what reason do we and the Pharisees fast, but your students do not fast? And Yahshua said to them, the sons of the bride chamber are not able to hunger for as long as the bridegroom is with them. But the day shall come when the bridegroom has taken from him, and then they shall fast. So Yahshua Christ is the bridegroom. He is Yahweh come in the flesh to remarry Israel after he dies. John three twenty five to 30 Then there came a dispute among some of the students of John with the Judeans concerning purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, for whom you testified, look, he immerses and they all come to him, or baptizes if we must. John replied and said, A man is not able to receive anything if it has not been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear testimony for me that I said that I am not the Christ but that I am being sent before him. He having the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices in joy because of the voice of the bridegroom. Therefore, this is my joy fulfilled. It is necessary for him to be augmented and for me to be diminished. 
So John the Baptist, in the Gospel of, of John, the Beloved, testifies that Yahshua Christ is the bridegroom. Revelations 19, 6-7. And I heard like a sound of many multitudes, and like a sound of many waters, and like a sound of mighty thunders, saying, Praise Yah. That's actually hallelujah in most translations. For Prince Yahweh Almighty reigns. We should be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, because the wedding feast of the Lamb has come, and his wife has prepared herself. And Yahweh, of course, is the Lamb. For this reason, Paul said at 2 Corinthians 11:2, For I admire you with zeal of Yahweh, for I have joined you to one husband to present the chaste virgin to Christ. Seeing that Christ is the bridegroom, here is the parable of the marriage feast, Matthew 22:1. And responding, Yahshua again spoke in parables to them, saying, The kingdom of the heavens may be compared to a man who is a king, who, is, who has made a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, and they did not wish to come. Again he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, Behold, my dinner is prepared. My bulls and fatlings are sacrificed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they, being uncaring, departed. Indeed, one to his own farm, and another to his business. But the rest, seizing his servants, but the rest, seizing his servants, assaulted and killed them. And the king, being angered, and sending his armies, destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he says to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go along the outlets of the roads, and as many as you should find, invite to the wedding feast. And those servants, having gone out into the roads, gathered all whom they found, both the wicked and the good. And the wedding feast had been filled with those dining. Then the king, upon entering to observe those dining, saw there a man not clothed in a wedding garment. And he says to him, Friend, how have you entered into here, not having a wedding garment? But he was silent. Then the king said to the servants, Binding his hands and feet, cast him out into the outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. The king is Yahweh himself. The people who were invited to the feast and would not attend are the apostates in Judea, not the Edomites, the real Israelites, who had the law, who had the prophets, and should have known to attend the wedding feast, but rather they followed the Sadducees and the Pharisees in disbelief. The armies who burned their city are the Romans who destroyed Jerusalem and much of the rest of Judea from 65 to 70 B.C. The servants sent out to gather others into the wedding feast are the apostles and the pastors sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel the dispersed Israelite nations. Now for the man without a wedding garment. This king sent his servants out to gather people from the streets, people who had no idea that they were going to attend a wedding feast upon leaving their houses that day. So the wedding garment certainly can't be an article of clothing 
yet the man without it was easily identified by the king on sight. Therefore, the wedding garment can only be this Adamic skin which we were born with. Of course, the wedding garment is white. Right? Well, that's an interesting... Uh, I, I agree with it, Bill. It's uh, it's not what they taught me in Bible school, I can tell you. But um, when the servants were sent out into the highways, it seems clear that's being sent out to the dispersed Israelites uh, throughout the nations. You know, the, the ones close to home rejected uh, and dispersed Israel, and this is going on right now. The invitation is going out um, to the wedding. And you could argue that's what we're doing here tonight. Well, this is the parable of the net. The, the man without the wedding garment, he's one of those bad fish that were caught up in the net. Somehow he snuck out. I don't know how else to see it. Um, but the fact that he was speechless, too, I think it's significant. At that point, there is no arguing. There's no, there's no Judeo-Christianity profession of faith from the other races. It's, he will have nothing to say whatsoever. I think it will literally be uh, that, that clear cut. Absolutely. The man was speechless. He couldn't defend himself. He didn't belong there. You know, there is no defense. And, you know, again, our, our Christian identity beliefs consistently go through the Word, and it's like a key that unlocks many of these kind of mysterious verses and parables if you come to it with a proper understanding. And um, I, I maybe one of the key verses in here is verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. And I think it's clear to say the many are called, Again, it's only Israelites. As you mentioned earlier, the ones that were called to the wedding and rejected, they were Israelites. They weren't other races. They weren't Edomites. Right. That's the biggest thing the church misses is that Yahweh does the choosing. Yes. Not the church. And, you know, relatively few, but few are chosen. And, you know, if you look at the masses of Judeo-Christianity churches, and if you're in any kind of big city and you open the yellow pages and look under church, page after page, hundreds, 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 hundreds of churches in every good-sized town, probably in large towns, maybe a thousand. Well, in New York, maybe. And yet few are chosen. So it's it truly is a narrow way uh, to the kingdom. And I have the full belief uh, and complete satisfaction based upon study that what we have is the correct way. The the, the chosen, this, this is it. If this isn't it, then I'm confused beyond hope. But I, I truly believe that the, the Israel identity theology is exactly correct. I, I believe it stands up to intense scholarship. I don't care what kind of criticism is leveled against it because I know the source of that criticism. And I think that we've just got tremendous truth here that's priceless. And I just appreciate the opportunity to just delve into it because it's life-changing to me, this stuff. Parable of the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Verse 31. And when the Son of Man should come in his effulgence, and all the messengers with him. Then he shall sit upon his throne of honor. 
and they shall gather before him all the nations. Notice that word isn't, isn't translated Gentiles there. And he shall separate them one from another, just as the sheep separates, just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he shall indeed stand the sheep at his right hand, but the goats at his left hand. Then the king shall say to those at his right hand, Come, those blessed of my father, you shall inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of society. For I hungered, and you gave me to eat. I had thirst, and you had given me drink. I was a visitor, and you had taken me in. Naked, and you had clothed me. I had been sick, and you watched over me. I was in prison, and you had come, and you would come to me. Then the righteous shall respond to him, saying, Master, when have we seen you hungry and nourished you, or you thirsting and had given drink? And when have we seen you a visitor and had taken you in, or naked and clothed you? And when have we seen you being in sick or in prison and had come to you? And replying, the king shall say to them, Truly I say to you, for whomever of the least of my brethren have you done one of these things, you have done them for me. Then he shall say to all those at his left hand, Go from me, accursed, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the false accuser and his messengers. For I hungered, and you did not give me to eat. And I had thirst, and you had not given me drink. I was a visitor, and you had taken me in. Naked, and you had not clothed me. Sick and in prison, and you had not visited me. Then, when have we seen you hungry or thirsting, or a visitor, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and have not served you? Then he shall respond to them, saying, Truly, I say to you, for whomever you had not done one of the least of these things, neither have you done them for me. And they shall go off into eternal punishment, for the righteous into eternal life. Now there are a, a couple of Old Testament passages that may bring light to this parable. Ezekiel, prophesying, con, prophesying concerning the lost sheep, says in chapter 34, I will seek that which was lost, and bring again that which was driven away, and will bind up that which was broken, and will strengthen that which was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will feed them with judgment. And as for you, O my flock, thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I judge between cattle and cattle, between the rams and the goats. Zechariah 10, 1-3 is talking about ancient Judah. However, the same prophecy may well yet have a full, a future application. Ask ye of Yahweh, rain in the time of later rain. So Yahweh shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to every one grass in the field. For the idols have spoken vanity and the diviners have seen a lie and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore they went their way as a flock. They were troubled because there was no shepherd. Mine anger was kindled against the shepherds, and I punished the goats. For the Lord of hosts, for Yahweh of hosts, has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and has made them his goodly horse in the battle. It is readily evident that the goats and the sheep are two different species, easily told apart, at least to the shepherd, and that these prophecies refer to people and not to actual animals. 
of the people of Israel. Their story first appears. I, the people, of, the children of Israel first appear as lost sheep, I believe, in Ezekiel chapter 34. Other pure Adamites, as we see in, in other scriptures, are also can also be sheep. And the goats are everyone else. We have two categories of people. We have sheep and we have goats. In Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, the sheep and the goats are nations. The word in Greek means nations. Now, the mainstream theologians will try to say that Matthew 25 is about good doers and evildoers, or believers and unbelievers. But the word says they are nations, so that is simply not the case. Rather, the other races have never even built hospitals or prisons until the white man built them for them. This parable has nothing to do, I'm sorry, this parable has to do with those nations, the sheep, who generally do the work of Yahweh on earth, and all of the others who never have, yet they try to claim a share in the inheritance, if only by their very existence, and they're goats. Hence, the world is divided into two camps. Either you are a sheep, and your future is life, and or you are a goat, and your future is destruction. There's no third choice given here. Whether you are a sheep or a goat, the determining factor is your nation or your ethnos, which is the Greek word for nation, which means ethnicity. This is why a lot of people try to say that Yahweh created other races of men in some sort of beast creation or some sort of six-day creation. And, and we have a lot of people, even in the Israel identity message, who insist that Yahweh created the other races separately from Adam and that it was good because that's what Genesis says of Yahweh's creation, that it was good. But Yahshua Christ in the parable of the net divides the world into only good fish and bad fish and divides the world into either sheep or goats. The sheep are the children of Israel. If you're not one of them, you're a goat. There's no third choice. There's no making excuses for the other races. It's not possible. There's no room for it in Scripture. You're either a sheep and, you're have, and you have life in the future, or you're a goat and you don't have life in the future. You have this life in the present, and that's about it. And that sounds harsh, but that's, that's Scripture. There's no third way. Can I make a comment? Sure. I'm just struck by listening to you how absurd it is that the masses of uh, Christian churches around the world uh, have a concept that a goat can become a sheep uh, by believing or by praying a prayer or confessing faith in Jesus and how many, you know, countless amounts of money are spent each year sending missionaries around the world to Africa, you know, to the true heathen countries in a in a completely vain attempt to turn these goat people into sheep. And, you know, we didn't really draw the point earlier but with the wheat and the tares, but a tare cannot become a wheat. 
It, it's, a, it's an organic thing. It cannot be changed. And a goat cannot become a sheep. No matter how much you try or pray or want to do it or send missionaries. And why, you know, it's just such confusion in the world. Um, well, Yahshua makes it clear that there are only sheep in the sheepfold. And that anybody who comes in any other way but through him is a thief and a deceiver. Yes, and just just the concept of of you wouldn't really even want goats around you. <laughs> you know, why would you want to try to turn a goat into a sheep? Uh, I'd much rather spend time with my fellow sheep and build them up and let them build me up and be together with the sheep and looking forward to the day when all the goats and the terrors are taken out of this world. And uh, Yahshua Christ even uh, refers to that there in verse 34. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I mean, we're looking to that time when this kingdom that's been prepared for us from the foundation of the world is going to be given to us when all of the goat people, all of the tares are taken out, and that will be our time to shine forth as the sun. Uh, Clearly, that will be an amazing, glorious time, and, and may it come soon. Um, just getting fed up with all the nonsense that goes on in the world today. Ready for these goats to be taken away right now. Illustrations of the Kingdom of Heaven. I'm sorry, I don't remember which book. I'm sorry, these come from Matthew 13, I believe. I could be wrong. I, I cut and pasted them into my notes tonight, and I didn't pay attention to where I got them from. I think it's Matthew 13:44. The kingdom of the heavens is like a treasure hidden in a field, which finding a man hides. And from his joy, he goes and sells all things, whatever he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of the heavens is like a merchant man seeking a beautiful pearl and finding one very valuable pearl, having departed, sold all things, whatever he had, and he bought it. You know, I've had this personal experience not only for myself, but with many others who, who I have seen over the years come to this same realization that once a good white man or woman fully realizes the true racial message and aspect of Christianity, no matter how apostate he was at one time, Old Testament and New, he immediately becomes consumed in it and seeks nothing else but the kingdom of Yahweh. You, you become entirely consumed with this message once you understand it. And whether or not you could relate it to anybody else appropriately or, or or reasonably it it i i mean you just grasp this message and you run with it and that's the way it is it's it it's got to be the truth it's got to be the true message because it with a good white man or woman once they understand it 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 just synthesizes with what they are it synthesizes with their heart their mind their soul their spirit and and you don't want to know anything else Amen to that, Bill. Um, also, it seems here that it's a treasure that's hid in a field, not just sitting out in plain sight. And clearly, 
our our beliefs are somewhat hidden in this world. Um, you go out into any kind of mainstream church, anything, you, you never hear this kind of truth. You know, and you'll hear nothing but cloudiness and mistruths and deception. And the treasure is hidden. You, you somewhat have to seek it. And I'm, I'm grateful that there's so much good information out now that we can log into uh, online. Uh, just tons of great information. You know, your website, Eli's website. I mean, there's a lot. If you want to if you want to get information, dig in, study, it, it's there. It's out there. And uh, I agree, it's a consuming truth. And you want to sell all that you have and pursue it. Because what else is there in this life but this that's worth pursuing? The parable of the ten virgins. This really doesn't have to do with race, but I get so many questions about what I think of the parable of the ten virgins that I just decided that I just had to cover it tonight. It may have to do with race, but it can't be demonstrated from the parable itself. Matthew 25, verse 1. At that time, the kingdom of that... So it's talking about the future. At that time, the kingdom of the heavens shall be like ten virgins, who, taking their own lamps, went out for a meeting with the bridegroom. Now we know that that's Yahshua Christ. Now five of them were fools, and five of them wise. But the fools, taking their lamps, did not take for themselves oil, but the wise took oil in the vessels with their lamps. And the bride, with the bridegroom delaying, they had all gotten drowsy and slept. Then there came a cry at midnight, Behold, the bridegroom, come for a meeting with him. Then all those virgins arose and prepared their own lamps. And the fool said to the wise, Give to us some of your oil, because our lamps are extinguished. But the wise replied, saying, Never, by no means would it be enough for us and for you. Rather, you must go to the dealer's and buy it for yourselves. But upon their having departed to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready entered in with him to the wedding feast, and shut the door. Then later the rest of the virgins also came, saying, Master, Master, open for us. But responding, he said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you, therefore you must be alert, because you do not know the hour nor the day. I believe that the key to understanding this parable is the oil. Oil is often associated with suppleness or with wealth, but it is also symbolic of knowledge. For instance, Proverbs 21.20, There is treasure to be desired in the oil and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spendeth it up. If the light of the body is the eye, then the fuel for that light must come from the brain, and that is knowledge. We all have the opportunity in our lifetimes to seek, and to those who knock, the door is opened. At the end of days, of the ten virgins, they have all gone through the motions, but only five of them knew to bring oil. These five have studied the word and have done what it says. The five that did not, they, at the end of days, upon the return of Yahshua, scrambled at the last minute 
but it was too late. They were caught in Babylon trying to buy oil. Babylon is equated with merchandising. At the return of Yahshua, that's where they were. Informed Christians, however, will know that Babylon is the world political, economic, and religious system of globalism, multiculturalism, and perversity, and will know not to be involved in it lest they suffer its punishments. That's the way I see the parable. I can't guarantee that's, that that's the proper interpretation, but that's what I think about it. Any comments, Greg? Yeah, Bill, a couple. Um, I know I know Christianity in general uh, would teach that these five virgins, uh, the foolish ones, were the unsafe uh, people, and the five were the saved ones, and the oil would be the spirit, and you know the five would get into heaven and the five would not. But knowing what we know, uh, I think it's clear to say that all ten of these virgins were Israelites. Well, right. They're all trying to get to the bridegroom, so, so that saved, unsaved paradigm just doesn't make it. Right. Exactly. I mean, the, the, the five without the oil evidently will be punished because they're, they're – I mean, I think they're caught in Babylon um, at his return trying to buy oil. I think that's representative of that idea anyway. Right. I, I, I think it's uh, pretty clear that all ten of these virgins are Israelites. I mean, the very fact that they're called virgins, you know, a virgin, I don't think – I don't think it's a literal virgin, sexually speaking here. I, I, it seems that it would be a virgin uh, denoting purity, and purity of the race would be the white race. I think you're talking about ten Israelites here. And just as you pointed out, and I, I, I go along with what you're saying, that five of them had prepared themselves with oil, with, with knowledge, with the knowledge of Yahweh, and uh, the other five did not and tried at the last minute to make up for it going out to buy the oil, and that's just not the way it's going to work. I think many of our people at the end of this age are going to be just like the five foolish virgins. All of a sudden, they're going to wake up and they're going to realize, you know, the years and years they've been going to these different churches that teach nothing, essentially, but untruth. And at the end of the, at the, end of the age, they're going to try to make up for lost time, and it's just not going to be there for them to do that. Um, I, it's it's a sad situation, and I think all of us in Christian identity you know, talk to our our fellow white uh, our white Israelites. Uh, most of them, who knows where they are mentally, but you try to share a little bit of oil with them, a little bit of truth, and they just look at you like you <laughs> you're speaking another language, and they you know label you um, with a with a smear. Uh, an anti-Semite smear, or you're a white supremacist smear. And these are going to be the, the foolish virgins that leave this life with no oil. And there's going to be an eternal price to pay for them, it seems. It's sad. And I, all I can say is it's, it's, I'm very thankful to see uh, the truths that we share and uh, that are in Christian identity because if this is the oil, and we're preparing ourselves to be the wise virgins. So, praise Yahweh for that. We have a lot of time left. I didn't think we, I was going to get to this parable tonight, but obviously I, I think I have plenty of time for it. Um, this parable does have everything to do with race, but it's a long one. And I'm going to follow my, my essay on the topic, translating Luke 16, 8, and 9. 
And I'm talking about the parable of the unrighteous steward, found at Luke 16.1. And I'm going to read my translation. But when I get to Luke 16.8, I'm going to read verses 8 and 9 from the King James Version and from my translation. Those verses are seriously mistranslated in the King James. Then he also said to the students, there was a certain wealthy man who had a steward, and he had suspected him of squandering his possessions. And calling him, he said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give me an account of your stewardship, for you are no longer able to be steward. And the steward said to himself, what shall I do that my master has taken the stewardship from me? I am not able to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, in order that, when I have been removed from the stewardship, they shall receive me into their houses. And calling on each one of those indebted to his master, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred baths of olive oil. So he said to him, Take your records and quickly sitting down, write fifty. Next he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred cores of grain. And he said to him, Take your records and write eighty. And the master praised the unrighteous steward, because he did wisely. Because the sons of this age are wiser than the sons of light are towards their own race. And I say unto you, Shall you make for yourselves friends from the, from the riches of unrighteousness, that when you should fail, they may receive you into eternal dwellings? Now, I understand that the King James has verse 8, and the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely for the children of this world are in their generations wiser than the children of light. And I'll repeat my translation in a minute with an explanation. The King James translates verse 9, not as a question, but, and I say unto you, Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. We should make ourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. That doesn't make any sense. That when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. That King James Version is incredible. Because only one, being Yahweh, can create an everlasting habitation. And he certainly isn't going to accept the mammon of unrighteousness. Verse 10, he was faithful with little, is also faithful with much. And he who is unrighteous with little, is also unrighteous with much. Therefore, if you have not been, if you have not been faithful with the unrighteous riches, who shall entrust to you the true? And if with that of another you have not been faithful, who will give you that which is your own? No one servant is able to serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will endure the one and despise the other. You are not able to serve Yahweh and riches. A steward is an oikonomist, one who manages a household. It was typically the chief servant on an estate who oversaw all of its operations. This particular steward had been squandering his master's possessions. And upon being found out, 
and relieved of his position. He worried about how he may further make his living. That's verse 3. Therefore, the steward concocted a plan whereby he would win the favor of those who were indebted to his master by chopping their bill. And hopefully, after he got fired as steward by his master, he would gain further employment from one of those whom he helped cheat his master. So he called upon each of them and reduced their debts in the household records, instructing them to do likewise. That's verses 4 through 7. This is no different than if he had actually stolen his master's property in order to bribe these debtors, not being specifically not being told specifically the reactions of the debtors, we might assume that each of them went along with the scheme of the steward. Yet somehow the master had discovered the acts of the unrighteous steward, as we see in verse 8. Perhaps one of his debtors was honest and informed him of the steward's actions, but we're not told as much. Yet surprisingly, this master praised the steward for what he had done but not for the reason which many may think. The following are some notes from, from my translation from my book, The Records of Luke, on my translation of, of this verse at verse 8. First, the word ahionis in the King James Version of the Bible is translated world here. Now, that word is the word from, from which the English word eon comes, and it means a space of time. It does not refer to anything that's spatial. It has a temporal meaning. It cannot refer to the world, because the world is spatial. It means an age that's temporal. The King James actually translates this word to mean world three or four or, or maybe six times, I forget, but it's, it's elsewhere in the scripture also. And, and everywhere they do it, it's, it's a serious misinterpretation of the verse, basically. The word phrony motoroi means are wiser beyond in this verse. That's, that's not a point of contention here. The word photos is white. The word huios is sons. But the word genea is not generations. The King James was forced to mistranslate eon as world instead of age, which is what it means, the sons of this age, not the sons of this world. Because they took a word that means race, and they translated that to mean generation. And because a generation is a, a space in time, and an eon is a space in time, they couldn't say that the sons of this age with the word generation. That would have made no sense. So they had to change age to world. So that, they so that they could mistranslate the word that means race into generation. 
Tanganeon Tanyuton is their own race. If the verse is translated properly, it says, because the sons of this age are wiser than the sons of light are towards their own race. This is explained in detail on my website in my essay, Translating Luke 16, 8, and 9. With this understanding of the Greek, it should now be manifest that the sons of this age and the sons of light are surely two separate races, which have vied with each other throughout the age, just as Genesis 3.15 forebode that they would. For the phrases sons of light and sons of this age, representing two separate races, here in Luke 16.8, can only be metaphors for the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And these two races are contrasted with each other throughout the New Testament. In first century Judea, the seed of the serpent, or the sons of this age, were represented by the Edomite Jews who descended from Esau, and the other Canaanite or Arab mixed races of the larger region. These were brought into the kingdom of Judea by the Maccabees from about 130 B.C. and converted to Judaism, for which see Strabo, Geography 16, and Joseph's, Josephus, Antiquities, Book 13. So there's plenty of documentation which show this. The seed of the woman were those Judeans who were the remnant of pure Israelites who returned from the captivity, along with many of the Greeks and Romans who were actually lost Israelites. Moving on to Luke 16.9, I shall first cite a note from my addition to Luke for the word riches, mammonas, or mammon, which is here, and in verses 11 and 13 is riches, and it's actually the name of a Syrian deity, so it's interesting that Yahshua Christ would use it. And, and it was the Syrian god of wealth, but he clearly did. And, and I translate the word rather than mammon. In my translation, I translate it riches or wealth. The verse in Luke at 16.9 is very naturally read as a question. But the King James doesn't read it as a question, and I haven't seen a ver another verse which does. Rather, many commentators use this verse as a statement to justify the wicked methods of the dishonest steward, which amount to stealing. So much drivel has been written concerning this verse, because its being a rhetorical question has been overlooked by so many. But the construction of the verbs here very naturally make a rhetorical question, where a verb of the indicative mood is followed by a verb of the subjunctive mood. And, and I understand that this is getting a little bit technical, and, and the paper on my website demonstrates why Luke 16.9 is a rhetorical question.
Yahshua Christ would not endorse stealing or, or endorse us purposely doing anything unrighteous in that manner. Biblical evidence that in context, this interpretation is the correct one is quite plain. First, the commandment states that thou shalt not steal. Christ is certainly not endorsing embezzlement here. The friends of the unrighteous steward cannot receive him into any eternal dwelling, for only Yahweh can do that. Verse 13 plainly states that one cannot serve both Yahweh and riches. So the obvious answer to the rhetorical question asked at 16.9 is a resounding no. The real lesson here is that the unrighteous steward, who is surely one of the sons of this age, in verse 8, acted as those of his race are expected to act, craftily, because they have no reward hereafter. They won't be received by Yahweh into eternal dwelling, and their friends can't make an eternal dwelling for them. The sons of light, the true Adamic Israelites, should not do as the sons of this age do. That's the lesson of this parable. And there's a greater lesson to this parable. The Israelites' eternal dwelling is with Yahweh, and there is none other. He should store his treasure there, since worldly riches, or mammon, mean nothing. It's interesting, and, and I have to look for this because, because I don't have it with me, That of the twelve apostles, Judas Iscariot, the Canaanite, he was the treasurer of the group. And that's in the, the Gospel of John, that John explains that. And um, it, it's when Mary puts the ointment on Christ and Judas protests that the ointment could be sold for a because it was great value. And John says that Judas really didn't care about the ointment. He wanted to steal the money that the ointment was, stole, was sold for or would have been sold for. The steward is the treasurer of the household. He's in charge of what goes out of the estate and what comes into it. When we appoint the sons of this age as stewards over our household, he takes our wealth and he transfers it to those indebted to us or to our enemies or to those that we do business with unrighteously so that he can gain favor with them. In 1913, we took the unrighteous steward and we gave him the Federal Reserve. We took the Jews and we put them in charge of our household. And ever since we did that, we've become poorer and poorer. And China and India and Japan and the Arabs, they've all been enriched at our expense. That's what we get for putting the unrighteous steward in charge of our household. Now, America is falling deeper and deeper into recession, and the Chinese are accumulating 
more and more of our bonds. Pretty soon, they probably already own own enough of our bonds to own Hawaii and California. And if you ask me, they could probably have those states, or at least the Mexican parts of California. The unrighteous steward is enriching our enemies, because when we get sick of them, he's going to try to flee there and seek an eternal dwelling with the Chinese, the Japanese, the Arabs, the Indians, whoever else he could get, whoever else he could move our wealth to. That's what's going on in this country today. The unrighteous steward, that's what's happened in this country since 1913. Greg? Well, Bill, I was just looking at these uh, verses here. I had not really seen this before, but it, it clearly points that this steward is an Edomite. Um, there in verse 3, you can just hear him. It says, then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? You know, a typical whining. Uh, if you've ever heard Jewish people whine, they're masters of that. But then he talks about, I cannot dig. To beg, I am ashamed. You can just, you can, you can see all the Jewishness coming out through the statements. They're the same way today. You know, you never see them doing manual labor. Uh, they refuse to do that kind of work. Obviously, farming's out for them. Um, but what an odd statement. I cannot dig to beg I am ashamed. And so then he figures out a way to swindle his master where, since he's in charge of the money, uh, hmm, you know, all of a sudden a scheme comes to mind where he can cut deals with the uh, people that owe his master money and ingratiate himself uh, by doing so. Uh, and as you pointed out, stealing and swindling, uh, you know, his master, certainly unrighteous behavior. And so much of this is going on today. Uh, again, as you alluded to with the banking, the banking system here is just, you know, it's taken this one parable and just exploded it into this times a millionfold, uh, essentially ruining our country by the same type of a swindle. Uh, only here the Jews are enriching themselves along with the other, uh, you know, uh, we can only imagine what kind of wealth has been transferred out of our pockets into the pockets of, you know, the super rich, the the great Jewish wealth merchants of the world. They're probably trillionaires. Uh, of course, they never get mentioned in the Forbes list of the wealthiest in the world. They're probably way beyond uh, <laughs> the ones that are mentioned. Well, right, and that's, you know, that's that's an odd kind. In, in this parable, the master never audits the steward until the end. And the Federal Reserve in this country has never been audited. Maybe it'd be uh, anti-Semitic to audit the the, uh, the steward. Absolutely. I don't know. He'd certainly be called that, I'm sure. Um, but a lot of truth in here, uh, just from a financial point of view. And, and I like how you pointed out about Judas Iscariot, how of the 12 disciples, he ended up being the one in charge of the money. Yes, it's only natural. It's only natural. And, and I mean, most corporations in America have a Jewish treasurer. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, try to find, uh, you know, what are the odds that somebody that would be the head of our treasury would not be a Jew? I'd really like to point out, well, well, first, the first United States of America Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, he was born to a Jewess named Rachel Levine. 
His father was a Scottish nobleman. His mother was a Jewess in South Carolina. Now, during the Civil War, the Secretary of the, of the Treasury for the Confederate States of America was Judas P. Benjamin. And guess what he was? He was a Jew from New Orleans, I believe. And the Secretary of the Treasury for the, for the North was Salmon P. Chase, Chase Manhattan Bank thing. Guess what? He was a Jew, too. It's just incredible. They always turn out to be the treasurers. Well, they've cultivated a, whether you want to say it's true or false, they've cultivated a reputation for being good with money. But, you know, whether they're trustworthy or not, I don't think you can debate that. They're not trustworthy. And, and this parable just points out that you back one of them into a corner, it'd steal you blind. Uh, just as we're being stolen blind, you know, with the usury system that has enslaved so many of us that it just seems like we can never get out from under debt. But we're constantly having our money taken from us in uh, an unrighteous manner. So let me I I found a scripture about Judas and and John hits the nail right on the head here. It's incredible. Um it it's incredible that more people don't pick up on this. Then it is, I'm going to I'm going to pick this up from John 13 22. And the disciples looked on one another, doubting of whom he spake. 23. I'm reading from the King James. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Yahshua loved. 24. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. 25. He then lying on Jesus' breast said unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then Yahshua said to him, Thou that doest do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought because Judas had the bag, and th and that means the bag that the money's put in, that Yahshua had said to him, buy those things that we have need of. Now, I want to establish there what the bag meant, what it meant to have the bag. Judas was the treasurer. Earlier on in John chapter 12, verse 6, I'll start at 12.1. Reading from the King James Version. Then Yahshua, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Yahshua, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Now John writes this. It's not part of the dialogue. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, 
but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. Judas was the treasurer. He didn't care for the poor. He just wanted to steal the money. And we've had countless Judases, and we have countless Judases in our society today. They sit in the treasurer's office or in the controller's office or in the banks of every large corporation or the government or wherever. I mean, they're, they're the, the bankers of society and the treasurers of society. And every one of them is an unrighteous steward. And we don't see that. That's absolutely incredible. That That's blindness, if, if I ever heard of blindness. Right on the money with that, Bill. I don't know why that's not more manifest. I think we see that. And, you know, even we need to be reminded of it. But, you know, every time I see on uh, TV them trotting out these financial advisors and Jew after Jew after Jew comes out that's the new Treasury Secretary or the new this or the new the, the new that and you can just I mean they have Jew written all over them and you just think to yourself are we the only ones that see what's going on here sometimes it feels like we are well, I, I mean it's so obvious we're being fleeced blind on a daily basis by these Jews and yet we keep allowing them to just be put in the positions where they can continue being the unrighteous stewards. People with the two C-blind identity message are the only people that see what's going on here. And we're excoriated for it by society, and that's why a Christian should not love the world. A Christian has to hate the world, because the world hates him. Yeah, very true. Um, I don't know, it just it drives me crazy, though, seeing these Jews come on and discussing the financial situation. And I know within me that these are the ones that have created the financial situation, uh, again, to bring damage to the wheat. You know, they have many, many ways of damaging us, and, and taking our money is one of them. You know, that makes us work harder. It hurts us in our life. We have less children, on and on and on. Just one more way to damage the sheep uh, by fleecing them from their money. And I was noticing these verses in John chapter 12, in the one that you read uh, concerning Judas. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. And it just occurred to me, I wonder how the bag got bare in the first place. Oh yeah, Judas was in charge of it, so the bag had already been fleeced. So he saw an opportunity to do just what the unrighteous steward did. He went and fill up the bag again. You know, save that ointment there. Why don't we go and sell that and we'll put that money in the bag? You know, in a sense, doing what the unrighteous steward did by cutting a deal to the detriment of his master. And knowing Jews the way they are, it's not in the divine record here, but I wouldn't doubt that he pocketed a few shekels along the way uh, in those various transactions. So, Hello, Patricia. Hey, Bill. How's it going? Okay. How you doing? I'm, do, I'm doing fine. I saw you called in, so I just had to say hi. Well, good. You know, do you have a, a minute to talk about, um, can we backtrack for a second to the parable of the, the wedding feast? You can talk about anything you want, Patricia. You're too good to me. You know, I, your interpretation of that may be right on the money, but I have an alternate one that I kind of like to float a test balloon on. Fine. 
Okay. So my my understanding, and I could be wrong, but understanding is that when people were invited to a marriage feast, that the robes were provided. They were provided by the groom. As a matter of fact, the marriage feast would last for as much as a week, I understand, and that the groom would buy the robes for all the guests for that entire time. He would provide them. I've and never so my- seen I'm, – I'm, I'm not – I mean, I'm not disputing with you, but That's I've okay. read um, – I've read all the extant histories from the period that I can think of, and I've never seen that. Well, I, I, I'm i not disputing either. I'm just floating out an alternate, you know, alternate. All right. I've, I've read Josephus. I've read Tacitus. I've read Livy. I've read Strabo, Diodorus Siculus. I, I've i Pliny. I, I, I've never seen that. I, okay, I'm being well, honest with you. I, all the histories I've read, I've never heard of that. That's okay. But look... I'm not saying it's wrong. It could be just they didn't mention it. That's just say that the the merit the the robes are provided. Okay, let's just say that. And the people that are invited are Israelite people that are invited, and they get there and they refuse the robe that the groom is offering them, and they decide they they think they're going to show up at the banquet without a robe on. And I would say. That, and that's why they're thrown into outer darkness, because the robe represents the righteousness of Christ. And well, I that believe the robe was provided when we were born. That's what predestination is. <laughs> that, that that could be true, but there are people that it's been offered to. Well, okay, I would I would have thought that it was that the robe had been offered them and they refused it, and that would make sense to me. The hard-headed Anglo-Saxons I know that refuse to see the truth of, you know, of the word and refuse to accept Christ. I I understand what you're trying to say, but I just don't – well, first, I don't see it that way, but second, I would like to see it substantiated. Okay, well, I'll have to do some research, and since I'm in the car, I can't do that right now. But (laughs) So that's why I just wanted to throw that in. Great show. Appreciate all the teaching. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Patricia. All right, you guys have a great time this weekend. Take care. Bless you. Okay, that'll be it for this installment of Christogeno, so I'm going to wrap it up here. Um, I will not be here tomorrow. I will be in Binghamton with Eli James. I will probably not make, make it back to, to Norwich in time for the program. Um, I will be here Sunday afternoon with Clifton Emmerheiser. And we will talk about, on on the Voice of Christian Israel program, and we will talk about the women in the genealogy of Christ. Ruth, Rahab, Tamar, help. (laughs) I'm sorry, I just drew a mental block. Ruth, Rahab, Tamar, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba. None of those women are what the mainstream commentators say they are. Thank you and good night.